My name's Kendra Houseman from Out of the Shadows, and you're about to listen to a series of interviews that took place over nine months. I want to know what life would be like for a child that had been through domestic abuse, parental mental health, poverty, and exploitation, to name a few. What would happen if we created a team, an army almost, to support that child? 28 people were interviewed, all with the same question in mind. What could have been different for child B? You're about to listen to Blondie's People. So follow us on our journey where I will speak to everyone from George the Poet to some of my good friends as we discover what it takes to become one of Blondie's people. Within these episodes, you will find answers, you will find guidance, and most of all, you will find an insight to a world that many do not know. There's a trigger warning for some of these episodes, and some of them are not child-friendly. We're going to talk about things that are very, very raw and real. So kick back and get ready for a journey, a journey you will not forget. Welcome to Blondie's People. Welcome to episode six of Blondie's People, where we're going to speak to the epic Diane Curry. Diane has built up the company Pops, Partners of Prisoners, and her story is not just unique, but it's also an inspiration. You're going to hear her talk about the impact of prison, just not on the people that go to prison, but those that are left behind. A lot of uh, the young people that we will work with within the community will have families in prison or family members in prison. I'm Kendra Houseman for Out of the Shadows, and these are Blondie's People interviews, people that have inspired me along my journey and should have been there for Blondie when she was a child, which brings me to you. Um, You are somebody who I've watched and reached out to a few times, and you've picked me up a few times, so I'll take that. Does anybody else know who you are? So, who are you and what do you do? Um, I'm not sure if anybody knows who I am. <laughs> but that's by uh, my name's Diane Corey, and I'm the chief exec, which is a grand title for a, a very a very mundane job. But I'm the chief exec of Partners of Prisoners and Family Support Group. So, the name really, as is, uh, it says on the tin, we support prisoners' families primarily. Tell me about um, partners and prisoners and, and, and tell me why you're involved. So tell me what they do, but I want to know why you're there. Yeah, absolutely. Um, partners of prisoners, like I say, uh, it's quite self-explanatory to some degree. We're here to support those families, loved ones, friends and associates of people who are serving a custodial sentence. Um, and we, we've, we're quite established now in relation to who we are and what we do. I mean, we're 32 years old as an organisation. I know. And I've been with them officially for 25 years this year. So it's a long time. Yeah, I was a young girl. <laughs> um, and what we do now is that we primarily have contracts with HMPPS, the Prison and Probation Service. We have contracts with the local authority and to provide women's service or, um, situations. But we... we we didn't start there. And I think it's really important that kind of some people get to know the history. Mm. We started as a group of individuals, a group of women, to be fair, who 30 years ago was experiencing the imprisonment of our loved ones. Um, And and that's very much why we started. And it was started because, like you say, going back, visiting our loved ones in custody, and that included my then husband at the time, um, 32 years ago, it wasn't pleasant. Now, it isn't pleasant now, don't get me wrong, but it yeah. certainly wasn't pleasant then because, like you say, some people may know, we queued up in the rain. There were no visitor centres. Um, our children had to wait with us in all weathers, uh, bored, fed up, crying. Um, we, 
we weren't treated very well, but then again, the justice system wasn't treating anybody very well at that stage. Um, and basically, I visited um, what we used to call Strangeways, which is obviously now HMP Manchester, uh, very often, unfortunately, um, Liverpool, Wymot, a lot of our local prisons, because again, unfortunately, my then husband um, had a chronic drug problem, chronic. Um, and I was young and I was naive and we had two children. So you battle with your own perception of this will be okay, yeah. this will be all right. But indeed it wasn't. Um, but at the time, uh, because of his drug addiction, he was taking parts in, uh, part, sorry, in, um, in criminal activity to fund his drug addiction, et cetera, et cetera. So I did visit prisons when I was a younger woman and I took my children to visit prisons and it wasn't a pleasant experience. And what happened was is that I met, um, who was then the chief exec of Partners of Prisoners, uh, Frieda Anderson, who was the founder. And basically, she was, she's, a, she's a valiant kind of person. She wants to, to take on the world. And I didn't at that stage of my life, to be fair. But when I met her, she gave me the, the impetus and the, the passion and the courage to kind of say, we don't, we don't deserve this, Diane. We, we're just trying to support our loved ones. We're just trying to take our children through a process. And it was a difficult process. So we joined forces, um, in, to cut the long story short, and POPs was founded in her kitchen in a two and two down terraced house in, in North Manchester. Um, and some other kind of interested people came around that table, including, to be fair, some good quality probation officers. And um, yeah, cut that long story short, that's where we started. That's still very much a part of who we are. I'm very keen that POPs still has that user lived experience, whatever the terminology is these days, but people who can come together and share what they've learned and what yeah. they know for the benefit of others. So we are now nearly two million pound a year income. Wow. We apply up to anything between 75 and 100 staff, give and take some part-time roles. And we have a lot of good quality contracts and we've demonstrated that, you know, from those early humble beginnings, yeah. business families, as we were, have, can come together and we can sustain services and we can develop services and we can, and we can provide a service to those who are unfortunately in our position, but 30 years later. So, yeah, that's a very, that's a very quick oversight of who in we depth. are. My, my dad was placed in prison when I was 18 months old. I'm 40 now. So the time that you're talking about would have been the time that my mum marched me up, Wandsworth Nick, yeah. up we yeah. went, rain, snow, my mum did not care. And she no. used to cook some food um, at yeah. one point. I remember it didn't, did you, yeah. She used yeah, to cook some Sunday dinner. I and think at one stage, I don't remember this, but <laughs> just before my time, I think somebody told me you could take one bottle of beer in as well. Yeah, and the bottle of beer. I don't remember it, but she told me that. Yeah. She was cooking dinner and we'd take it up. But that was our Sunday. And it was almost as yeah. if that was our religion. And I resent my dad and still did right up to it because we'd go there. I'd be searched. She'd be searched. But the yeah. main thing I remember is I had a doll and they pulled the head off the doll in front of me. My dad was also involved in drugs. And they just pulled the head off. They weren't even thinking. And it traumatised me. I can still remember standing like, whoa, and they couldn't put it back together. So they just kind of bundled it to my mum. But she still kept going because, like you, she had faith that this man was going to change. So that if she had had a support network like that, I think life would have been very different for her. Absolutely, because like I say, at that stage, my support network, again, I say unfortunately, but I don't mean that in a negative really? sense. There were really good women that supported me, but they also had 
husbands and partners are brothers in custody. So we just accepted that that was the norm. Yeah. And so we supported each other in, in a roundabout way, but nobody ever challenged it about what are you doing, Diane? You know what I mean? Is this good enough for you? Is he ever going to change? And when are you going to make decisions that, that suit you and these children? And the person who did that for me again was Farida. Because although she was supporting her partner, she was a bit more of a no-nonsense kind of person. Yeah. You know what I mean? And, and she gave me that, that strength and that power to actually question the relationship. You know, it wasn't good. <laughs> don't, don't think about the bush. It wasn't good. Um, yes, he said he loved us, but actually you can question that 30 years later, yeah. um, et cetera, et cetera. So meeting people is really important. People yeah. who can challenge you supportively, people who can allow you to see things safely from a different point of view and joining POPs and becoming their first paid worker. I was a family worker at the time on 9,000 a year, 9,000 pound a year. I felt it was a fortune. <laughs> I still think it is now. Uh, it probably is for some. Um, but I'd, I, I'd gone back to, I'd gone back to school. I'd gone back to university by that time when I started to, when I got a job with POPs and uh, to be a social worker because of course that's what wounded like that wounded healer syndrome isn't it you know what i mean so i'd gone to be a social worker and and successfully passed the, the, the degree course but i knew i didn't want to be a social worker i yeah. knew i didn't want to get tied up in the very difficult job that social workers have non-disputed but i knew that wasn't for me to be to be to be gagged and bound and that's that's quite a strong phrase but to be gagged and bound oh, by the bureaucracies and stuff i knew that wasn't for me so i got the social work degree and then this job came up for Pops, their first paid job. They got some funding. Before that, it was voluntary. Um, and I applied for it. And I think social workers at that time, newly qualified, was going into, into service at around fourteen to £15,000 a year. And I took this job at nine. Um, the best thing I ever did. Best thing I ever did. Um, because at the time, there was just three of us. And now, like I say, you know, working with Farida for over 15 years and she retired eight years ago. And, you know, I, I was then recruited and, and interviewed for the CEO's job uh, and was successful. And we do things differently and that's OK. And she, she was really good because she never got involved. Once she left Pops, asked the founder, and we, we have been friends, she said to me, I will not interfere with your way of doing things. You know, to me, Pops, <laughs> you know, if you like, uh, from, from a leadership point of view. And uh, she's been true to her word. Uh, and sometimes we have conversations about it but so I've been very lucky I've had really good people and I think that's one of the messages I always say to people surround yourself with good people absolutely my people who will yeah. challenge you uh, but supportedly uh, and understand that you know people aren't going to change in 24 hours but that's those small steps and the drip 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 syndrome and inside it's like that you know you take small steps and you look around and you climb the mountain and it's that it's that concept that Kind of, I, I hold with me and I try to pass that on to others because it benefited me and uh, it worked you. benefited others. Yeah. So, yeah, visiting prisons, it's, it's, not, it's not great. It's not great today. I know, I know the physical aspect has improved. Um, we have visitor centres. They're very well managed most of the time by agencies like POPs and others across the country. Um, the visits rooms are, are much improved now. You know, yeah. I suppose there's one or two that's still not caught up. But generally speaking, you know, refreshments, play areas, even staff. <laughs> even staff. <laughs> you know, I can remember in the old days some really crude, direct comments from staff. Um, the way they spoke about us, the way they spoke to us, uh, we accepted it. We didn't challenge it. We were just grateful to be in and to be out and to see our loved ones. Looking back, you just think, how did they ever get away with that? My mum didn't allow them to get away with that. Um, but today, 
there are some really good staff in the system. I think it's important to say that for any prisoners families that's out there, you will know them, you will hear about them. Um, but unfortunately, like any situation or any organisation, there are some that are still dragging their feet a little bit. But um, I'd like to think it's, it's an ongoing progress um, and progression. Um, and obviously right now it's difficult for families um, not being able to, um, to see their loved ones during this kind of COVID-19 situation. Uh, and we've never experienced that, you know what okay. I mean? So this is a first. So this is something that families today are going through and we're trying our best to try and alleviate some of those difficulties that they're experiencing. But it's tough. I'll be the first to say I don't think we've got it right as an organisation because we're struggling ourselves to some degree to, to get ourselves in the right place at the right time to, to offer that support to families because there's very little coming out. Are and you... we also feel that there's very little there's very little we can do. Yeah. You know, we're reliant on the prison service and they're normally very good and they have been very good to be fair. But their information coming out is is not great to us and so we've not got a lot to pass on to others so that feels a bit strange because we've normally had a wealth of information we can share with families and yeah. support them, whether that's emotional or practical right now it's difficult to give people emotional support because we've never experienced this and it's difficult to give them the knowledge and the information because it's not coming out in droves you know what mm. i mean so this is this is new and it, and it is difficult even for agencies like pops and where we come from I've got um, um, some friends whose, whose sons are in prison and one of my friends, her son's been moved to a prison and they're not communicating with her and how that has happened I don't know and so is your service to one area, like if I wanted to refer you to my friend or something like that, are you only in one area? Uh, we're contracted to deliver services to most, not all, of the prisons in the northwest. Okay. So the 14 prisons we provide services to, about 9, 10 of them. Yeah, if I remember rightly. So we are the Northwest Prison's preferred family service provider. Yeah, okay. contracted. Um, we do take calls from people out of that area. Mm -hmm. um, like you say, it's normally comes from people that we know, yeah. you know, that, that understand who pops are. It's like, oh, you know, Diane or her staff may be able to assist. Um, but what we always try to do is we will assist in the first instance. But if we find out that 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 person is from London or from Bristol or whatever, we will try and then locate the, okay. the contracted organisation. Um, and of course, there is the telephone helpline, which is the national telephone helpline, which is managed by Pops on behalf of the prison. Sorry, by Pat on behalf of the prison service. So there are there are. There's lots of support out there. I suppose the difficulty is if you don't know it's out there, then it may as well not be there. So no, no, still part of our job yeah, is to keep getting our information out there. What happens normally is, is that families realise who we are when yes. they enter the visitor centre. Yes, but, that makes but, sense. And it's normally a bit too late, you know what I mean? It needs, our information and our, our communication needs to be out there before that process. Absolutely. Before you get, your, your loved one may get into trouble or at the court, which we've had, we've had uh, projects at court before, but they're always short term funded, so they come to an end. But there should be information at court. Court is, yeah. having been through the justice system as, as a supporter of somebody through going through that process. Prisons, I kind of dealt with, you know what I mean? You go in, you see your loved one, you go out, and you think, okay, that's that done for a week or a fortnight or whatever. Court was a different, a different ball yeah. game. Court, even now, I go in court on a professional basis, very rarely, but sometimes I do for one reason or another. And it still brings that that kind of, you know, yeah. it's where all the power lies. I know um, the feeling. You don't know what's yeah. going to happen, do you? Once you're in prison, you've got that much time and that's what you're doing. You, you can settle into that routine as long as everything's running okay. Um, but courts, it's, it's such an emotionally charged environment. Yes. 
And most families, unfortunately, again, come out of the court setting having heard details of the offence yeah. maybe for the first time, because obviously your loved ones don't tell you everything and sometimes it can be quite traumatic what they may or may not yeah. have done. So they come out of court hearing the details maybe for the first time. They then obviously have to deal with whatever sentence has been passed. And if it's a custodial sentence, you know, the impact again is tremendous. And then they have to think to themselves, what do I do now? And there's nobody there, um, primarily. Okay. I know there are some organisations that do have court support projects, talking about the northwest there's nothing there for families in the northwest if you go to court you're basically on your own and that's something i think pops needs to revisit yeah um, when we're kind of challenging and, and trying to look around for funding to provide projects court really for me i i feel it now so i don't know how families experience that when they know they're going to lose their young person or their husband or their, yeah. or their daughter or whoever um it, it's critical that they have access not even to emotional support although that's important but they need to know what now, Practice. where they're going, what's the possibility they'll go here, there or wherever and what happens and, and who can help you at that stage. And we don't. They have to kind of forage through that process by themselves. And then when they finally do and they end up at our visitor centres, whichever prison they're visiting, it's normally a local prison uh, as they first get uh, received from court. The tension and the, and the, and the stress uh, that, they're dealing, that, that they that they had come through that door with at that time. Yeah. It's unbelievable, as, as you know. So my staff, Popsy staff, they do a lot of good work in bringing people back down, giving them emotional support. And, and most families, they just require some information. Oh, <laughs> you know, communication is exactly communication is the key and and put their minds at ease and that's difficult sometimes but mm. we know the prison system, we know the regimes, we know the landings, we know how they function. We don't we don't sugarcoat it. But actually, we do say to families, it will be okay. There will be an adjustment. But, you know, it's, it's maybe not what you're thinking it is. Because, again, if prison's never happened to you, we all make our judgments by, I don't know, films that we watch on the television or the media. So we kind of do allay some of those fears uh, appropriately. Um, and then we say, so if he's got any troubles at all, any issues, because that's normally what families come to us with. They don't come with their issues. They come with their issues for their loved one. Yeah, of course. And we get that. So that's what we deal with first. But by the time we've dealt with that and offered some support and then they're visiting regularly, we then say, and how are you? <laughs> how are you doing? Yeah. And, and that's the time when they probably do cave in emotionally because that's the first time in a long time. Because um, even their loved ones, you know, and I'm sorry to anyone out there that's, that's kind of currently serving a sentence, but, you know, generally speaking, loved ones don't always ask their families how they are either, you know what I mean? It, it, it can be, it's something that kind of goes over your head. Um, so we, we, do, we do a variety of things. Whatever families bring to us, we try our best. We're not the experts on everything, but we're the first port of call, we're the engagers and, and potentially the navigators. What we yeah. help families do, help them to navigate through another system of maybe support that they might need that's specific to them. So, yeah, and, and like I say, there's lots of other organisations nationally that do that. We're not unique. But what I like to think about POPs is that, like I say, we came from being those prisoners' families and it's a real assist in the engagement. Don't get me wrong, I'll be really honest. You know, I've got fantastic staff and I wouldn't say it otherwise, why would I? But I have. But, you know, at the end of the day, we sometimes don't always get it right either. But I've always said, if we're honest in our communication and we accept and that knowledge that we might not have got it right at whatever stage, then we can put it right. And even that in itself, families appreciate that. You know, I don't know, but I'll find out. I say to my staff, if ever you don't know the answer to something, just say, I don't know, but I will find out for you. You know what I mean? And, and that's the principle of what, what, we, what we base our services on. 
I always say um, that when somebody serves a sentence, the family never were asked for it. So they didn't commit the crime, they weren't, but they served a sentence alongside them. My mum served a sentence with my dad, so I'll tell you that. And so did yeah. I, to a certain effect. And yeah. Yeah. I work with, with mums and young people. When their child is sentenced, that, that mum serves that sentence the whole you know, six years or whatever it is. So to be able to go and speak to somebody who's not going to judge, who's not going to ask the questions of what did they do, that's not important. And just have a voice of reason what you're offering there is just oh heaven sent like my mom could have done with that and i know lots of people would benefit from it i'm so i'm sure there's lots of people out there that who don't know about pops who oh, really yeah. could benefit as well you know what i mean and so again what i've got to do on behalf of the organization is to really focus on how we get our communication out there and and even just having the opportunity to take part more in the in video calls or yeah. zooms or whatever you know unit you, you, you use has made me realise that there are different ways that we can get our message Absolutely. out there. So again, it's, it's just about constantly thinking and more than that, constantly listening. You know, we, 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 we don't always listen to hear. So I tell my staff, just keep your ears open. You don't have to be the expert in every field. You just have to listen to people. Yeah. And if, you if you don't know what to do with, the, with what they're asking or what they're, what they're displaying, bring it back to those who might be able to, to help. Because like I say, I don't expect any one member of staff to have all, this, all the answers. Um, I don't have all the answers. So, you know, that, there's the expectation. But collectively, we come up with some good responses. Um, and that's the ethos, really, what we try to what yeah. we try to fulfill every day. And, and it's, it's not easy, though. <laughs> it's not meant to be easy, I don't think. There you go. I'll, I'll accept that one. If, yeah, if it was meant to be easy, then we probably wouldn't be here, would we? Um, what do you see... After lockdown, when it starts to ease, what, what do you see things looking like for families of prisoners after? Do you think things will go back quite easily or are you, are you already feeling that this is going to be even more complicated than it was? I think initially um, it will, it's, it, it, again, I don't like to say it's going to get worse because I don't want to put fear factor into people. No. But when visits, my view is, is that when visits are, are kind of reinstated, they're not going to look in the first instance like they were looking previously. And I've not really kind of thought about whether that's a good or a bad thing. I suppose, again, we'll just have to work our way through that. But basically, uh, when, once visits do start to get reinstated, we have to, as an organisation, and we're working with HMPPS on this, because as an organisation, we have to make sure that the environment that we work in and that we provide our services in, i.e. visitor centres primarily, we have to ensure that they are fit for purpose in relation to public health. Yeah. Oh, we're going to have to make some changes, whether it's this physical social distancing, whether it's any kind of PPE equipment that families may want to see for themselves or for the staff, whether the staff want that. Um, how are we going to get families into the prison in a physically distanced manner? You know what I mean? So the queuing up, how we get them through the search processes, how we get them into the visits. Um, and once they're in the visits, if it's normally a full visit, then it might not be a full visit in the first instance. They might have to maybe reduce the number of visits yeah. whilst they kind of consider the physical distance between their loved ones and somebody else's loved ones. Um, so I think in the, in the short term, visits when they, when they are reinstated will look different. They will look yeah. and feel different for a period of time. I suppose my only hope is, is that for all the right reasons and with all the right public health intentions is that some way not long after that people will find the confidence to kind of revert to a more informal process of visits because i'm not sure yet what the restrictions might be no you know you walk in a visit and you, you can normally hug um or have some physical contact with your loved one we don't know whether that's going to be possible when visits strike up again 
Um, so there's all these unanswered questions, which we are, we are in communication with, with the prison service centrally. Um, but I don't think they've got any more answers than we yeah. have. They're waiting for government guidance and, and then we'll have the discussion. But in the middle of all that, of course, then his families who yeah. don't have any information around what's being planned, what's being considered, and might not even consider those, those plans themselves. Uh, they just want to get to their loved one, and I get that. But there's, there's going to be a period of time where it's probably going to be extended, extended, extended difficulties in relation to having access to your loved one. I think having a conversation like this is good. You haven't got the answers. I haven't got the answers. No. But you're kind of voicing what they're probably... I, I know that people that I know are having these thoughts. They're like, well, when will I see them? So actually having this conversation and putting it out there the way we're going to gets people yeah. just thinking and ready that it might be different. It might be harder or different, you know, and I think that's yeah. important. Yeah, really. And the other thing as well to, to bear in mind is this, this, whole, this whole notion of... Um, Visits are vital, don't get me wrong. I understand about physical contact, just like I understand about physical contact and going to work. And we you know we, we're, we're social animals primarily, and certainly with our loved ones, we want to see and feel that they're okay and, they're, and that they're fit and they're well. And, and you do that primarily by a visit, um, and that they're vital. But again, this is just a notion that there may be other ways to keep in touch, yeah. to complement that, or certainly to complement or to replace that in, in the short term. And I do know that some prisons are um getting in place now um this kind of video calling okay um, prisoners now of course they've said things before and it hasn't come to any fruition we know what what you know we know the project in particular i, I meant the early release it didn't come to fruition and, and i get i get that it's, it's again it's miscommunication there's yep. there's an idea that we'll release prisoners but nobody really thinks to well what has to happen for, for that for that to take place and there's a whole host of stuff that I was aware of that needed to happen and that the probation service needed to risk assess and, you know, people didn't have homes to return to and those that did, they had to make sure that everything. So it didn't work and I make no excuses for that because it's not my decision um, and it should have been able to work better. But it looks like that's not going to happen now. Yeah. What's going to happen potentially is they're going to invest more in this concept of um, video calling, which isn't perfect. But I think at this, if, if visits aren't going to be up and running for a, a week, two weeks, three weeks, I don't know the time frame. And when they are, they're going to be staggered or maybe reduced. Then at the end of the day, we have to have some other alternative where we can physically see, even if it is virtual, our loved ones and, and have that kind of conversation. So there may be some lingering after, after COVID has kind of been res resolved, if that's the right word. I remember... For many years, we've said to the prison service about access to mobile phones in prisons, and they said it, it can't happen, it's this, that. But we do have them now. It's not perfect and they're shared, but we do have appropriate mobile phones in prisons that's been handed out by the government. So the principle is actually the penny's dropped. You can have access to, um, for those that's not got in cell telephony. What they might say then, that if we invest in video calling, it was always kind of, well, we can't do that. It might be too expensive. What about the security? Well, we're doing it now because we have to. I say we, HMP, really? yes. because they have to. There might be something that lingers on from that. So in the end of the day, if we reviewed this in 12 months time, we might say specific appropriate mobile phones are in prisons where there's no in-cell telephony. Video calling now becomes part yeah. of the norm. Um, and visits can actually be reduced, potentially, but be more relaxed, yeah. you know, so there's lots of, we, we have to look at how, what the learning from this has been. Of course. Um, from my point of view, but I do get, 
if my husband, partner, son, sister, whoever is in prison today, I would be asking the same questions as everybody else. I would be demanding the same answers as everybody else. And I have to own up, you know, as an organisation, we haven't got the answers. But all I can say to families, if they do contact POPs or any of the other family support agencies, we might not have all the answers, but we'll listen to you. We'll take your questions maybe where you can get an answer. Um, but we'll acknowledge, we'll acknowledge your fear, your anxiety, your frustration um, and your anger, you know, to me. But then there's also families who they get it, you know, to me. And they understand that there's processes and we're all kind of locked away and we're all missing our loved ones in other, in other situations. But there is something I think about the regime that's had to be adopted in prisons to potentially keep prisoners safe. Yep. It's 23 and a half hour lock, lock up, lockdown. Um, I personally, I, that can't go on for much longer. You know what I mean? And, I, and I, from what I hear, and I'm not saying I hear everything, but what I hear, prisoners have been very compliant. They, 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 they've stuck to the rules, you know what I mean? They, not they've got much choice, I get that, but they haven't, they haven't kicked back majorly. They've stuck to the rules. They've worked with staff potentially where, where appropriate and where possible. Yep. And they have been locked down. But if you imagine the lockdown for us now and what it feels like and the, and the 23 and a half hours with very little outside your cell door for right. six to eight weeks, that's got to change. And, and I would like to think that the prison service, if anything, even before visits, are considering how they get their prisoner population a little bit more out into yeah. the prison environment. I'd, I'd like, I'd like to think that's that's on their agenda uh, in the first instance. It's got to be. I ask everyone um, at the end of my interview the same question. Everyone's answers is different. So let's see. Have you learned anything about yourself or other people during lockdown? Um, yeah, I suppose I have. Uh, what I've learned about myself is, <laughs> and I don't know whether this is a good or a bad thing, I'm actually more compliant than I thought I ever would okay. be. <laughs> you know, because whatever we think about COVID, there are people who are, who are struggling, who are suffering, and, and, and unfortunately who have died. But my view on COVID initially was, was very much around, oh, you know, it's, it's another virus and blah, blah. But that has changed. Yep. I have complied, and, and there's two reasons for that. One is I think it's the right thing to do. We've all got vulnerables within our, within our, um, with our lives potentially, and neighbours and friends. But also, as 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 the leader of an organisation, you, I was talking about myself. I I feel I felt the need to comply. You know what I mean? Not that I wouldn't anyway, but to demonstrate that that this is the right thing to do. Uh, because I have got staff who are going out to work every day. I'm working from home. Um, but I've had to ask staff to go out on the front line and to provide some services um, in, in their visitor centre environments, although with no families visiting. So, you know, I, I, I kind of wanted to go down and support them, but I haven't. I've stayed poor. I've done what I've done what I need to do. So I've been I've been very compliant. I'm struggling at the minute, to be fair, um, with the compliance. But I have been more compliant than I thought I ever would be. Um, I've also learned that we actually it's business it's business as usual. And so when, when oh, we first, yeah, it, and how quickly we, we can take previous business as usual. And it took us two days because when we first were told that, that visitor centres were, were no longer opening and that's where the bulk of my staff work, I just said, look, go home, go home and give me two days while I digest what we need to do as an organisation. And within two days, we had a, a model up and running. We had people back in work. We knew what we were doing as managers, if you like, and leaders of the organisation. We've got everything in place. And it took two days. And how quickly we can adapt 
Yeah. So compliance, adaptability, they're things that, you know, I suppose, is that new? No, but it brought it home that, that we, we, we can and we will adapt and change very quickly. If we have to. If we have to, yeah. Okay. Yeah, absolutely. Well, thank you very much. This has been like the best interview, like, <laughs> information.